Good morning, family. It is so good to be here. You know, it's good to see your beautiful faces shining with the glory of God. And um, I saw many of you wearing shirts saying revival. And revival's in this place. The Spirit of the Lord is here. And when you think of being revived, you can think of somebody that's fallen on the floor and they're having a heart attack and they're passing away and they put on those those electronic things, and they give them a jolt, and they're revived. You know, God is coming into our hearts in this place, and he's reviving us. He's changing our minds. He's, he's opening up the perspective of heaven. We're able to see who Jesus was and who he is and what he wants to do in our lives. This year is my 51st year of following Jesus. And... Um, yeah, it's amazing. When I was 14 years old, I came from a non-believing family. I had friends that were older. We would drink beer, smoke pot, talk about spiritual things. And one day, um, my girlfriend and I, we went to see the movie The Exorcist. And it's a horrible movie. I don't recommend it. It's about the devil possessing a girl. But the, the amazing thing is outside that movie theater, there was a man with a card and he said, the devil's real and God's real and he wants to know you come to our church. And it was a church called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, who was in the midst of revival. And we were literally, I tell people we had the, we had the hell scared out of us. We were scared to death after that movie, and we went there. And it felt like here, you guys. I walked in that place, and revival feels like this. It feels like God coming and touching you and reviving you. He brings a renaissance. It's a rebirth. And I want to speak to you young people in this, in this audience. He took a girl that was very wayward and lost, and he's taken me all around the nations because he's given me life and he's changed my heart and he's doing that for you. I just want to speak. You have a destiny in the nations in this place. What's happening here is going to come out. And you know, hundreds of thousands of people came to the Lord during that season. We can expect that here for your country in England, that, that tens of thousands of people will come to and through this place, and you're going to lay hands on them, and you're going to see them recover, and you're going to see them revived. There's great hope here, you guys. I just want you to grab hold of it, grab hold of Jesus, and stay there. My life has been so good. There's been such hardship, and there's been tears and tribulation, but Jesus said, don't be afraid when hardship comes because I've overcome the world. You know, we have Jesus. And um, I just blow wind in your sails today, you guys. Just take the ride with Jesus and keep going. I love you so much. Amen. God bless you guys. How many of you saw the movie, The Jesus Revolution? Oh, come on. You guys got to watch that movie. It's really a... a a season of our Christian history as, as men and women of God. And it's really amazing. It's a great depiction of the era Diane was just talking about. 
We're in the Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Southern California season. Literally, they were baptizing 300 people every weekend into the kingdom. And right uh, sort of a year after that movie ends in 1972, that's when Diane, a year later, was baptized in that exact same cove by some of those same pastors. And so again, we are on the verge of what could be the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has happened in human history. We're gonna talk about that more tonight. But I really want to encourage you to relish the moment you're in as a church. You know, I, I honestly have mentioned your church a hundred times. I've boasted about what God is doing here because it's so extraordinary. This is a, a taste of heaven where all nations, tongues, and uh, tribes and kindred come together to worship the King of Kings and to walk in the fullness of his beauty and his uh, power on the earth. And you guys are experiencing it. So don't take it for granted. I just encourage you, like Diane was saying, just appreciate the moment you're in, but know that it's for even such a time as this that God is gonna expand this, he's gonna impart this, he's going to infect other churches with the same beautiful virus that is here, and I believe it's gonna to go to the nations as we sang today. Let, this let your glory fill this place, fill this room, and let it go forth from here to the nations. Amen? That's what Chroma Church is all about. And so anyway, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for receiving us, and uh, we are excited to just be able to partner with you for what God is doing. So why don't you open your Bibles and turn with me to Second uh, Peter chapter one. And uh, you know, I, Diane and I have been married 43 years. We have seven children, seven grandchildren. And uh, it's been an amazing journey. Um, wonderful, empowering, incredible, but also challenging and difficult, just like all of your lives. It's been that beautiful combination of uh, agony and ecstasy, and uh, God is still real. He's still true. He still has us in the palm of his hand. But uh, we met in, uh, gosh, it was 1980, and I was leading an outreach, and uh, Diane was with Youth of the Mission. She came up to San Francisco. That night, I made sure she came on my team as we went out on the streets, and uh, <laughs> And we had this interesting encounter with a bunch of angry, drunk individuals and while we were worshiping Jesus. And, uh, and anyway, I held her hand for the first time on the first day I ever met her. I know, it was just like a, just a, a reassuring little, you know, grip of her hand. But then I figured I'd better marry her because I don't want to defraud the girl, you know. I just, anyway, so we got married within six months. And... Um, and actually, it was probably a, a, about maybe three months after we were married, we were sitting in our living room doing our morning devotions, and while we were praying, Diane actually had an open vision. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is, but that's when you, with your eyes open, you're seeing another world. You're seeing another uh, uh, supernatural picture. And so she started describing to me this room she was seeing. It was a room about this size, and there were uh, rafters in the ceiling, and there was windows on the side, and there was double doors. And, and uh, as she was narrating this vision she was having, she said, and, and I see us, and we're, we're kneeling at the foot of a stage, and uh, there's a man that's praying over us. And she said, now I'm hearing, I'm hearing a voice, and the voice is saying, 
Be diligent to make your call and your election sure. And then the vision just dissipated. It went away. And so when you have a vision like that, you know, she asked me, well, what do you think it means? I I don't know. What do you think it means? Well, we didn't know. But about two weeks later, we had a call from our ministry headquarters, and they said, Michael and Diane, we would like you to come to our pastor's conference. I said, well, you know, we're still just in training. We have not been ordained yet. They said, oh, yes, we know, but the Lord told us to invite you. And so we signed up for this conference. Three or four weeks later, we end up in in this uh, retreat center in Santa Cruz, California. And when we walk in the room, Diane grabs me by the arm and says, Michael, this is the room. I said, what are you talking about? Well, this is the room in which, you know, we were in that vision. I said, oh, that's amazing. And so we stood by the side and we watched all the people come in, probably three or 400 people. And and while we were there, um, you know, we, she said, but I don't see the man that was praying for us. Well, really, the next day, the guest of honor for the rest of the week shows up, and Diane says, that's the man. That's, that's the guy praying for us in, in my vision. But you have to understand that this was back in the discipleship movement days, and um, it was very, very strict, controlling church environment. And so if you stepped out of line to get prayer from somebody that was kind of your elder or somebody, a guest speaker, you'd be considered proud. You'd, you'd uh, be accused of having what we called young man's syndrome, which is where you strive for, you know, attention or recognition or whatever. And so I just, like, I was gun shy. I was not going to do, you know, anything to make this happen. And so I was, you know, Diane, just let's lay it down. It's not going to happen. Let's just enjoy the time. So anyway, that night he preaches on apostles, and they call forth everybody who had been interviewed and vetted to be apostolic, and they prayed over them and ordained them, and that was beautiful. The next morning, he taught on prophecy and the prophetic gift, and then they invited all the people that had been, you know, considered and candidated and interviewed and vetted, prayed for each one of them. Then in the afternoon session, they went to evangelists, and he preached on evangelism, and then they called up all the evangelists. And my wife and I were sitting right, right over here, and a man who had just been ordained a prophet ran over to us and said, Michael and Diane, you need to get up there. And I said, David, there is no way in the world I'm going up there. I'm not gonna subject myself to the scrutiny, to the judgment, to the you know, accusation that, who are you? You weren't interviewed, you weren't vetted. What are you doing up here presuming to receive prayer? I'm just not gonna do it. And he says, but you're, you're called to be an evangelist, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, no, I don't think so. That's not my calling. He says, but you're doing the work of an evangelist, aren't you? I said, well, yeah, and he said, well, get up there, and he grabbed me by my arm and yanked me out of my seat, so I grabbed Diane and yanked her out of her seat, and here we ended up kneeling exactly where she saw us in this vision, and so this guy is going down the row, praying for each one, evangelist, 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 and then he gets to us, and he says, wait a minute, you're not called to be an evangelist, and then he paused, and it was kind of like, oh, no, what am I doing here? I knew I would get busted. I, I, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. And anyway, he said, no, you're called to preach the gospel 
of the kingdom to the church. And you're gonna be a pastor to pastors and a leader to leaders. And he started talking about our future destiny. And it was just amazing. It was an amazing thing. And then we went back to the scripture that, that was quoted in the vision, and this is what it says. In 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, it says this. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, now this, this promise is incredible, but it's not just to Diane and me. We're just one of thousands, millions of believers who are called by God. In fact, every single person in this room right now, every person who's listening to us on streaming, every one of us, the scripture says, has a call from God. Now, when the word call is used in scripture, it's almost always referring to our eternal calling, to be with Jesus forever, that that's the sort of theological framework. But guess what? Eternal life doesn't start the moment you die. Eternal life starts the moment you're born again. You have already entered into your eternal life. You are on the journey. In fact, the scripture says that you are a bi-locational, bi-locational person, that you are right here seated, seated in Chroma Church today in this morning, but you are also simultaneously seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. You are living out a dual existence because right now you've been left on the earth to fulfill some purpose You've been uniquely designed by God to do things that no one else can do in quite the same way. You're amazing. You are a world changer. You are somebody who's gonna influence others for the glory of God and the extension of his kingdom. But at the same time, you need to understand that that's unto something, that God himself has elected you. You know, we're, we're facing an election in the United States. I think you're getting close to one here in the UK. And the fact is, is that, you know, an election, the majority wins in, you know, a d Democratic or a Republic uh, dynamic, but God is the one who elects. <laughs> and the vote of one is the vote of everything. In other words, he selects you and he also calls you. And the word calling is an interesting word because it means a summons, like a, a king if if King Charles was to write you a personal letter and say, I want you, uh, you know, at, at my healing ceremony after I'm healed from cancer, okay, and you're gonna come to this party, well, you're not gonna say no, okay? He has called you, and, and what the scripture says, though, very interestingly, is it says, therefore, brethren, be diligent. Now, that, that's an interesting word. Diligent requires a degree of effort, a degree of focus, a degree of application. I'm gonna take this seriously. I'm gonna go after this. Be diligent to make your call and your election certain, positive. It is a done deal, but you have to do that. There's a, there's a responsibility that each one of us has to actually engage God and understand that when he chose us, it wasn't just to go to heaven. He chose us not just to go to heaven, but to bring heaven to earth. 
And we will all do it in different ways. Some of you will do it in business. Some of you will do it in education. Some will do it as a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. Some of us will do it in the medical field. Some of that will, us will do that in this church by serving and by blessing and by, or some of you will do it as church planters, that each one of us has a unique and different calling, but ultimately it's all unto the glory of God and the extension of his kingdom. But there's an interesting little word that is right here at the beginning where it says in verse 10, therefore. And if you've been around preachers for any amount of time, you know that when you see the word therefore, you find out what it's there for, okay? And so you have to go back a little bit. You have to go reverse into the passage a little bit to find out what is he saying? Why is it so important that we make our call and our election sure? Now, let me just say one thing as we go forth here is that you may not have had some prophetic word. You may not have had an open vision. You may not have had, you know, some other revelation or, you know, somebody prophesying over you. Let me just say this. That does not mean that you do not have a God-given calling. In fact, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 is very clear that we are his workmanship being created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained that we would walk in them. Now, what that word, you've probably heard teaching on this many times, but the word workmanship that God is fashioning us, we're like a painting that God is painting, or we're like a sculpture that God is forming, or, or we're like a... Um, you know, a song that God is writing. In fact, the word that is used there in the Greek is the word poema, which is from, we derive the word poem. That you're the song that God is writing. But what's interesting is we can think of that in some general sense. Yes, we, we all read the Bible. Yes, we all pray. Yes, we all witness to our friends. We go to church. We give money. Like, these are the general works of God that every believer is engaged in, and those are wonderful things. But I believe the passage itself is indicating not the general works, but the specific works. How do I know? Because the final verse says this, the final phrase says, God ordained it beforehand. In other words, God knew you. He formed you in your mother's womb, according to Psalm 139. He actually, it says that he, all your days were written in his book when as yet there were none of them, that God himself has shaped you. He's worked through every season of your life, even the most horrible circumstances. God has been present to redeem those things, even the most joyous, wonderful seasons of your life. God has worked in those things to actually shape you and form you and even produce inside of you passions and dreams that God alone has authored. He brought you to himself through a unique process that is different from anyone else. There was, you know, if you think about why did I choose Jesus or why did he choose me? Ultimately, if you compare that to any other person in this room, it'll be slightly different because he had a unique journey for you. You were called by him and every one of us, whether you know it or not, whether your, your, your promise, the dream is just a, an infant thing in your life, a very small baby that's in the cradle, 
or whether you've been a believer for 10 or 20 or 30 years and you've already put most of your promises away, you've, you've buried them in the soil of your life because of disappointment and difficulty, regardless, God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But look at, look at verse two and three and four. Okay, go down there. It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then look at verse three. As his divine power has given to us all things. In other words, his divine power has already given you past tense. When you came to Christ, you received everything that you need to become everything that God has called you to be. I mean, it's just so shockingly uh, crazy abundant. Hello? You guys <laughs> tracking with me here? Because this is the word of the Lord. That God has a purpose for his people and the greatest uh, fulfillment in life is discovering and fulfilling the very thing for which God created you. And he's already given you every single resource you need according to this passage. His divine power has given you all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who called you by glory and virtue. In other words, he's already come across your bank account. He's already invested, you know, 10 million pounds in your bank account. He said, whatever you need, draw on this resource and I will bless you. Uh, unfortunately, some of us have lost our PIN number and we, we can't seem to find it. But in fact, God says, no, these resources are there and I'm gonna train you how to access them. The gifts, the calling, the anointing, the blessing. You're gonna be able to lay hold of these things, even the financial resource to fulfill the dream that God has given you. All those things have been laid in store for you. But look at the next verse. He says this. By these things, by virtue and glory, he has given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, one of the things I celebrate about Chroma Church again and again is the testimony of salvations that are going on in this church. I mean, what an incredible thing in a time where most churches are not winning souls at even a level that stays current with population growth. You guys are seeing breakthrough in this area. It's wonderful, and I believe it's for you, and I believe it's for Lester as well, but I believe it's ultimately for the whole body of Christ. I believe there's an equipping ministry that's gonna come out of this place that is actually gonna be not just equipping in terms of a model, but equipping in terms of anointing that is gonna actually revolutionize the body of Christ around this nation and around the nations of the world. Because this is where the greatest deficit is. This is where the greatest lack is in the body of Christ, is the winning of souls, the plundering of hell, and the populating of heaven. I mean, this is such a gift that God has placed in your hands. Amen? Let's give him glory. Come on, let's just thank him. This is just awesome. What amazing leaders that God has given you to guide you into this place. But look again at verse four. Okay, it says this. God has given each one of us exceeding great and precious promises. What is he saying? 
Well, we all have the same promises of being cleansed from our sins, of being born again, of, of going to heaven and being with him forever, that we have this amazing heritage that we have in Christ that is filled with so many good things that we all share. They're part of the common grace that we all have received. But then I believe he's also not just talking about the general promises, but specific promises. Like what has God promised you in your future? What has God promised to each one of us? I believe he gives us specific promises. To Diane and I, you know, in that vision, he gave us a promise, and that promise has actually kept us in the pathway of heaven for our whole lives. Because guess what? Life throws curveballs curve at you. You're going after a promise, and all of a sudden you hit a brick wall. All of a sudden, you're sideswiped by a, a bus, okay? It's like we find ourselves in a situation where the pathway to the fulfillment of all that God has promised you is not a straight beeline pathway. There's curves, and there's, there's bumps in the road, and there's difficulties and challenges. I mean, when we first received these words, we thought, wow, God's gonna move us forward. A few years later, we met John Wimber, he was traveling with a man named Lonnie Frisbee. It changed our whole trajectory. We started hanging out with these guys and we got anointed in the Holy Spirit. We started seeing healings and breakthroughs and deliverances. And then the Lord called us to plant a vineyard church in San Francisco. And we started in 1984 and within, gosh, 10 years we had more than 1,000 people, which San Francisco had never seen. It wasn't because of us, it was because of the promise of God on our lives. But at the same time, we went through some challenges. A couple of our family members were hurt really badly, and it knocked us off balance. And we found our, our marriage going through some difficult times, and we, and we found our ability to lead, even though the church was taking off like this, our family was going through deep, deep challenges. Some of you have experienced these kinds of things. Some of you have found yourself on a fast track with God but then you get sideswiped or you, get, you hit a brick wall and you find that the very things that you thought were going to be easy become incredibly challenging and difficult. And then disappointment sets in. Hope deferred makes your heart sick. And we find ourselves moving into a place of despondency or pain or ultimately just allowing those dreams that God gave us to just die. And then we have a... We bury them and we put a tombstone and we say, you know what, this far, no further. Well, today I believe it's a day to resurrect fallen dreams. I believe today is a day where you'll be in to resurrect those things that God has said to you over the years that maybe you just finally gave up on because the challenges were too great. But I believe it's time for us to see those things emerge again. Amen? And so I want to encourage you, as we look at Scripture, to see that God has given you promises, but you are the steward. So think of a man named Abraham and a woman named Sarah. Okay, their original name was not Abraham and Sarah. It was Abram and Sarai. And Abram meant father, okay, because he had received a promise from God. God has said, leave your people, leave your land. I'm gonna bring you to a new land and I'm gonna give you a child. And through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. 
So he was given this incredible promise, he and his wife together, and yet five years passes and they have no son. And he turns to God and says, God, why don't you let my servant be my heir to the throne? Let, let my servant be my son. God says, nope, that's not my plan. Okay, another five years pass and, uh, and Sarah gets a great idea. Why don't you sleep with my handmaiden? She'll give birth on my lap and that will be our son. And of course, that was a pretty bad idea. And it's left, you know, 2,000 years of problems have emerged from that particular mistake. How many of you have made mistakes trying to do God's will in, in your own way and in your own power? And so again, they blew it again. And then a little bit later in the process, God tells them to change their name. So he changes his name from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which is father of many nations. Well, that's a little presumptuous, wouldn't you say? It's like, wow, you're the father of... So it's like, you know, Sarah's calling him in for dinner. Hey, Abraham. <laughs> she used to call him Abram. Father, come to dinner. Now she's saying, father of many nations, come to dinner. Okay, everybody's like, yeah, right. I've heard that before. I mean, it's easy to get cynical. It's easy to get skeptical when the promise of God has not come to pass in the timetable that you had set. It's easy to allow disappointment. But here we finally find Abraham and Sarah encountering the Lord. And he says, this time next year, your son's gonna be born. Do you realize it was 25 years later? He was 75 when the promise came. He was 100 when it was fulfilled. And then 15 years later, God says, take now your son, your only son, and bring him up on the mountain and kill him. In other words, God wanted to always make sure that he was first even above the promise. Amen? But here we see this incredible picture. Or we see the picture of Moses, who spent 40 years, you know, in Pharaoh's house, and then he makes a big boo-boo, and he turns out to have 40 years in the wilderness where God is reshaping him and finally sending him back to fulfill the destiny that God had given him. You're gonna deliver my people. Or think about David who had 17 years of preparation where he had to run from Saul the whole time. Or think about Esther who was captured as a sex slave. She was given to the king to test, test her out and he had favor for her. She becomes the queen of the land and is able to deliver her people. But it took place over a long period of time with much heartache. Think about Daniel who was captured as a young man and castrated and, and made a eunuch. And yet he serves the Lord faithfully and transforms a nation, a, a Babylonian nation, into a kingdom expression that actually delivers God's people. And think about each of the promises of God throughout Scripture. And then think about the promise of God to you. How have you been able to steward how have you pushed away the vultures that have sought to consume the sacrifice you set before the Lord? Or maybe you haven't. Maybe you've just kind of given up at times like I have. Times where I just sort of said, I, I can't, I, there's no way I can see it happening, God. I just, you know, I have to let go. I want to cover one story and then we're going to close. Turn with me to... <clears throat> Psalm chapter 105. 
and we're going to look at a man named Joseph. Now, you know Joseph had a dream. In fact, his dream was very specific, that his brothers, his 11 brothers, would bow down and give him honor. Okay, now that was a stupid dream to talk about because his brothers were very jealous. There was a lot of sibling rivalry. And then the next dream he had, his brothers bowed down and his parents bowed down. And so he's like, he put his foot in it pretty badly. And then when he ended up, went, went out on, on a mission from his dad to check on the brothers, they decided to kill him. And then they say, well, let's don't kill him. Let's make a few bucks. Let's sell him into slavery. He goes down into Potiphar's house. He's purchased by Potiphar as a slave. And he ends up, because of his nobility, because of his excellence, he becomes the second in the household. And he rises up, but then he's accused falsely of attempted rape. And he's thrown into the dungeon. Could you imagine this guy's life? Here he is. He has great expectations. He has a dream of being the best, of being the chief among his brothers, and life goes an opposite direction. And here he is having to pick himself up as a slave and then, and then being thrown into dungeon and having to deal with that. And then he has this amazing advantage. The cupbearer and the baker come in and he interprets their dream and then he finds himself saying to them, please, when you get back before Pharaoh, please remember me. I'm here because I was falsely accused. And they forget him for another couple of years. Could you imagine being in that position? Well, I guess you can. Because all of us have had promises that did not come to pass the way we thought they would. This is the normal Christian life, you guys. And yet... At a certain point, the baker remember, or the cupbearer remembered, and the cupbearer said, I know a guy who can interpret your dream, Pharaoh. And they called him in, they shaved him, they gave him a bath out of the dungeon, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh says, well, who else can lead this particular project? It's you, Joseph. And Joseph rises up, and there's literally, if you think about it, like 21 years before, between the promise and the ultimate moment where his brothers, after seven years of plenty and then three or four years of famine, come before him and bow down. The dream is fulfilled. But look what it says here. It says in Psalm 105, verse 16, he called for a famine in the land. And it's talking about God. God brought a famine in the land. He destroyed the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph was sold as a slave. See, God is taking responsibility for the entire process of giving a promise, but then having that promise go sideways. But here we are at this moment where God says this. It says, they hurt his feet with fetters, and he was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. In other words, there was a promise that was given, but until the time that the promise came to pass, until the time that his brothers finally came before him and bowed down, the word of the Lord actually had a process of transformation inside of Joseph. 
It's as if the Lord hooked him with a promise, like, like a big hunk of meat, and then drew him down the conveyor belt while the saws were going to saw off all of the garbage, all of the sinfulness, all the pride, all of the ego, getting cut away until the, the heart of Joseph was ready to carry the promise of Joseph. Until the word of the Lord came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Until the character, think of it like an anvil in a, in a, in a uh, you know, shop where somebody's hammering out a sword. That sword requires something to hammer against. God has been using the promise in your life as an anvil to hammer into your life the character of Jesus so that ultimately you can be the quality of person that can carry the beautiful promise that God has given us. So we need to become stewards. In fact, the final verse I'll share is out of 1 Timothy 1.18, where Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says to him, stir up the gift that was given you. Through prophecy, through the laying on of my hands, Take the thing that was spoken over your life. And then a little bit later he says, and fight the good fight of faith. In other words, engage it like a battle that you have to fight for the fulfillment of what God has promised in your life. And it's the process of stewarding the promise of God that produces two things. One is the transformation of your character into the image of Jesus. And the other one is the fulfillment of the promise that will produce the fruitfulness that God has ordained. Amen? Amen. Pastor, could you come on up and hallelujah.